Recorded live at the Hawk's Nest on the summit in Pataskala, Ohio, this is Garage Days. Underproduced and over the top, I am your host, Arch Madness, on this episode. The name of the book, Nothing But a Good Time, The Uncensored History of the 80s Hard Rock Explosion. I've got the authors on the program, Tom Bojur and Richard Beanstock. Tom Bojur was a co-founder and former editor in chief at Revolver. And Richard Beanstock is a former senior editor at Guitar World Magazine. I mean, you could choke a giraffe with the rest of their resumes as well. But uh, you get the picture. Uh, These dudes, uh, they kick ass, and so does their book. Full disclosure. Now, these interviews, they were recorded at QFM earlier this week. Normally, I do everything in-house, or in this case, you know, in-garage. But not this time. I can only get afternoon times for the interviews, and I wasn't going to let the opportunity slip away. It is a must-have for any 80s rocker or anyone who loves the music from that era and that scene. Uh, these guys nailed it. Uh, so informative, so cool. Tom Bojour is up. He's going to go up first, and then it's Richard Beanstock. Enjoy. The book, Nothing But a Good Time, The Uncensored History of the 80s Hard Rock Explosion by Tom Bojour and Richard Beanstock. I, ha- I have a chance to talk to both authors, but up first is Tom Bojour. Tom, what's up, man? Hey, man, thank you so much for having me. I'm, uh, you know, enjoying a beautiful spring day and talking about metal. No, right? That's the way it should be, man. That's the way it should be. And, and, and full disclosure here, Tom, I am halfway through my second read of the book, and uh, I'm, I'm just, I'm such a fan of it, and it's done in such a, a cool style, uh, in the words of the people who lived it, man. And to start off, I'd just like to know what drew you to this era of rock and to tell the story with this style of storytelling. Um, to, for, in terms of what drew me, or and I think Rich too, to, 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 to this style of rock, it's just that I was, you know, I'm just turned 50, so I was, you know, 15 <laughs> in 1986. Like, yeah, like today's my 50th, Tom. Today's my oh, 50th, bro. Happy, happy birthday. Yes, my fellow Gen Xer, yes. I'm sorry to interrupt, but that's funny because... We're all dialed in the same way, the folks yeah. who love this music. Everybody, everything's going to be okay. I swear, I'm <laughs> two months into it. But, um, but, you know, so this stuff was just being beamed into my brain by MTV, and I, I just, it completely captured my imagination when I was growing up. And so, so I, you know, I just was, it, it, it's been with me the whole time. And, you know, when I started at Guitar Magazine's, um, in, I, I was a, at Guitar World magazine, and I started in like '94. It was already too late; like you couldn't get to interview any of these guys because sort of history had already erased them that quickly. Right. So, there was, so as a professional journalist for many years and stuff, I really never had a chance to talk to all these people. Um, and it was, you know, this was really the music that, you know, I wanted to be those guys. Like when I saw Poison's "Talk to to Me" video. And CC Deville is sitting next to a semi truck with like guitars <laughs> all the way down, and I'm like, you know, I'm like that's that's that is exactly how I would like my life to play out is that many guitars, that stage, you know, um, like so it was really a, a returning a debt to this music that made my youth sort of fun and 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 uh, uh, bearable. And in terms of the format where we have everybody talking like that, I mean, it's a it's been a 
format that's worked really well for a bunch of rock books. Like the dirt is in this format where people are talking. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, um, Aerosmith has a great book called Walk This Way that's the same. And then there's a great history of New York punk rock called Please Kill Me that's also this way. And we thought it would just be much more interesting, you know, to tell it this way, where it's sort of like at the best points of the book, you have the feeling that you're sitting in a room around a table with like all five members of whatever of White Lion, of Kicks, of Motley Crue, of Guns N' Roses. And so it's a really much more immersive experience and also that you're getting to know the people you know these people haven't done that much press recently some some of them you're really going to get to get a sense of what some of these people are like if they're funny if they're serious if they're grumpy by using this format so it just really seemed like the way to go Oh, and it's it is it's awesome, and especially for those of us who I don't know, man. You know, we, we grew up on those fanzines with the the hip raiders and the circus and and creams. It's just, I just I thought it was just an excellent way uh, of storytelling, and I just thought it was super cool. Now, listen, you're saying you came in uh, to Guitar World in '94, and that's right around when I came into radio, and you kind of touched on it there. It was tough that the guys that I wanted to talk to weren't really receptive anymore because it wasn't the 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 hip thing at that point um was it tough getting these guys to kind of open up at this point i guess in the career i mean yeah I, there's this one scene in the book like where i just to, i will answer your question but like where tom Kiefer, it's one of the we're talking about sort of the 90s tom Kiefer talks about how they were doing some tour and they were trying to buy ad time on a radio station in Seattle, just buy ad time, not even get like right. interviewed or anything. And, and, you know, the radio station is like, we really can't take, have mentioned Cinderella on the air. Like that's how it was. Um, I think if we tried to do this book any earlier, it would have been really hard. Like if we tried to do this book in 1998 or 1999, right. a lot of these, people would not have been interested in talking about it. They would have still just been totally shell-shocked and, and miserable. You know, once 2000 rolled around and then there's Rocklahoma and the, the Poison Tours, now all of these people in these bands are actually in a really good headspace because, you know, it turns out that the music that they made and that, you know, maybe that was out of fashion for 10 years, well, now it's the new classic rock. Right, because right, people like absolutely. People like you and me, with sort of like the buying power and the 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 you know the growing nostalgia as our youth disappears in the rearview mirror, you know, we right. want this stuff. We want this stuff, and so all of the people we talk to, you know, who want to be, are out working. You know, they're doing the weekend fly fly in shows. They're doing festivals. They're doing cruises, and actually, in a lot of cases, making more money now in terms of take home than they were then. So people are, were in a really good headspace and I think, um, more willing to talk about it also, um, you know, cause mainstream press has not been friendly to these bands historically. Um, you know, anytime, like even when Motley Crue was on the cover of Rolling Stone back in like 1989 or whatever, basically Rolling Stone just made fun of them for, and pages. I think once word got out, because it's a pretty small community, that we were real fans, that we knew what we were talking about, and that we were coming at this music from like a place of love and respect versus just asking them like the same 
five questions. Like, don't you think you look stupid on the cover of my songs? You know, or, or whatever it is that these guys have. Once word got out that like we were in it because we really cared and and sort of had a heart in it, I think. Um, it, it, I mean, look, there's still some people we didn't get, but it it, it wasn't always pulling teeth, and artists were very sort of gracious and helping to connect us with other artists as well. So it, it worked pretty well. Uh, the stigma of calling it hair metal or hair, whatever, you, what, you know, and I, and I see some people who, who really have an issue with it. And, and here's my thing, Tom, and I'd be curious to know what your thoughts are on it as well. And, and if you just kind of stayed away from that word when you were talking to these, these guys and gals. Uh, my thing is, for me, I have, a, I have a segment that's called the 420 haircut. And so I, it's how I get it played. Like, I can't worry, but I'm just excited that here I am 50 years old uh, at a rock station in Columbus and I can play Cinderella. I can play Kicks. I can play Hurricane. I have that segment and it's, I don't care what you call it. I just want to hear the music that I grew up on. For us, look, we made a very deliberate decision not not to do it. I, yeah, not to do it on the cover. Like we did not want to do it on the cover because here's why: is like some artists are okay with it, mm-hmm. some artists are not okay with it. You know, um, look, most artists will go and do a station ID on Sirius XM Hair, um, Hair Nation now. Like you guys, you know, business is business, but. A lot of artists would prefer not to be called hair metal. I don't think like the, the guys in Skid Row could be referred to as hair metal. You know, like they would prefer to be referred to as a hard rock band. So our stance was like, look, it's going to be clear which bands we're writing about. But out of respect for the bands who sort of gave us their time, you know, it's, a, it's a, no, I got it, man. Spend, I got spend it. Ninety minutes yeah. on the phone, like with me, I, I would. I, I will do you the respect of not using what is, you know, which it's one of those things. Like any way you slice it, hair metal as a term began as a derogatory term. Whether now it's fine and it's the easiest way to define this stuff, obviously. But so that's why we didn't do it because we knew that it would bum yeah. at least some of the people in the book out. Frankly, it would prevent if that was the word we were using. You know, and like when we were pitching to people, it would have probably prevented us from getting. No, I got it. I got it, man. No, I I run into it all the time, but it's, um, you know, it's. it's, I have no problem with it, though. Like, I say it, you know what I mean? Right. No, I I get it, man. I get it. I wasn't in one of those bands. I, I I I didn't get told that I couldn't that everything I had done was garbage in 1992. <laughs> right. No, I get you. I get you. Now, Tom, there's a, there's a constant theme, and, and you guys bring it up in the book, and it's the, and I'm not saying that the artists, rock artists of today didn't do it, and rock artists of the 70s didn't do it, but there was just this never-ending commitment to making it that was just prevalent with this whole scene. Just talk about that. I just, it, it is. Everybody. I mean, they gave it up. Guy after guy after guy in this book. I mean, they just they they left with a with a dream, man. There, there, it really is like this theme, and we didn't we did not set out making this book to be like we're going to make a book that really shows like that really the driving force behind this music was like this tireless work ethic, like like that wasn't you know not like that's not like oh that's what that's what I want my book to be about, but really it is what the book is about. It's about. You know, you're, and I tell people, I'm not. You, if you read my book, you may not walk away, you know, thinking like L.A. Guns is a great band and want to go listen to them. I can't control your taste, but you will respect the effort and sacrifice that every sort of person in this book makes. 
you know, there's no fallback plan. These aren't, these aren't people with like college educations deciding to do this to see if it works out for fun for a couple of years. It's all in, um, incredibly ambitious, sometimes cutthroat, you know, they're not always doing the nicest things to make it, you know, like firing, <laughs> firing your buddy cause he's not quite good enough or yeah. quite, not quite good looking enough or whatever, you know, it was the eighties, man. Yeah. But like, it really is a theme throughout like, yeah. these bands, these people in these bands, they were willing to switch quick band fire people, you know, uh, live on like ramen in LA on the floor with like cockroaches crawling all over them. Like it was really total commitment what? to to making it. And look, and, and and it worked in some cases. It doesn't mean you know you you could probably go back and be like, well, maybe that's why some of these people weren't the most balanced individuals. I don't know if the ambition and single mindedness that allows you allowed you to succeed and dominate the sunset strip makes you, you know, good point. Yeah. The part, like, like great husband material. Right. No, good. No, good. Good point, Tom at Tom Bojour. And I, I'm going to say the same thing to Richard uh, as I, as I conclude with you here, I, I talk about this music on, on my radio show. I talk about this on my podcast and I will forever uh, use this book as a reference, man. It's just, it was so well done, and I just, I, I enjoyed it so much, my man. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. We are happy, really happy that people, you know, that it's sort of found a home with people, and, you know, it's yeah. the best thing you can hope for. So thank you so much. All right, let's check in with Richard Beanstalk right now. And like I told Tom, what an amazing ride this book is, Richard, and the way it was written through the voices of the artist who, who lived it. Uh, just a killer style of storytelling, my man. I love this book so much. Well, thank you. Um, I appreciate that. And yeah, we—I mean, that's—we were just trying to tell an engaging story. Um, you know, something where you can just drop the listener or the listener, the reader, right into it and have them feel like they're a part of the action. And and hopefully, we were able to achieve that. And and whether it was the uh, the West Coast, the East Coast. I loved how it just flowed that way. But the interchanging parts for for so many of these bands. And and Richard, I knew some of the story with Rat Dawkin and who would be Ozzy's guitar player. But damn, I didn't I didn't realize it was that just muddy and just back and forth. Yeah, and I have to admit, with with stuff like that, I mean, part of this is like, I mean, we're we're reporting on it and telling the story, but part of it is like wanting to just know the story for ourselves. I mean, right. Like, like anyone, I grew up kind of knowing this stuff and like sort of, you know, you hear some stuff from George Lynch about what went on. You hear maybe something from Jakey Lee. He doesn't really talk that much about what happened, but I was like, you know what? I just want to know this story and figure it out. So the, the, to be able to talk to George Lynch and Jakey Lee and Ozzy and Sharon Osbourne and just all four of them ask them specific questions about that day and that audition and everything, and then just get the story right from each of them. I mean, as much as it was great to be able to report on that, I just wanted to hear it for myself. And yeah. now I know. You know, yeah, something man. I've thought about for 40 years. And hopefully, like, that's what people get out of the book as well. Yeah, for every uh, Gen Xer and 80s rocker like myself, we owe you and Tom a debt of gratitude for, for getting to the bottom of a lot of these stories. And, and I'll tell you, Richard, I the, the level of success Twisted Sister had on the East Coast before really taking off with We're Not Gonna Take It and all that, I... I I had uh, I didn't know it was that big in the early days. Yeah, it's wild. And I think T. Snyder says at one point uh, when they were a club band, like, you know, he said adjusted 
for 20 into 2021 dollars, they were each bringing home like 200 grand a year or something just from playing the circuit. Yeah, Yeah, man. Um, But they were that big. I mean, they were sort of, you know, they were rock stars on a very, you know, in a very small pond. Um, But it shows that, and they put in 10 years of that before they broke through. And I think, you know, that's one of the things about a lot of these bands. Twisted is an extreme example because of the, the length of their history, but Quiet Rise is the same thing on the West Coast. It's like, we think of these bands at, in a certain way, but what we don't know is the sort of long tree branches that extend down. And so that when you find, when they finally do break through in a mainstream way, even if it's their first record, they have so many years of experience behind them that it's not surprising that they were able to achieve what they achieved. And you guys, the the ride that you take the the reader on is it's awesome, and it's like I was, you know, it wasn't just how do I put this? I mean, it starts with the you know the whole Van Halen and the Quiet Riot exploding, and it takes you all the way to pretty much Nirvana. Never mind. There's something for every '80s rocker in here. I'm a huge Wasp fan, and I don't want to ask you a question about that, but I just want to throw this out there while I'm thinking about it. I've I've got a buddy, a good friend. He loves Pretty Boy Floyd, and it's like mm-hmm. you guys. You, 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 every stone was turned over, man, literally on this, and uh, I, I just—it was so damn thorough, Richard. Uh, thank you, and this, yeah, Pretty Boy Floyd. Like it was important to have those types of bands in there, and obviously yeah. you can't have every band because there's literally thousands of them. But the, if you can have bands like. Pretty, I mean, obviously the big ones, but then Pretty Boy Floyd and Tuff and Bang Tango and those types of right. bands that you can, they can at least, they can sort of speak for the whole experience for that subset of groups. And you're better off, instead of trying to hit every last name, yeah. pick a few of those, go deep, and then you can get a real sense of like what it was like to be at that level of band, you know, at that time. Yeah, man. Perfect. Exactly. Now, uh, I'm, a, I'm a huge Wasp fan, and it was cool to finally hear uh, everyone's story on them and uh, the links to shock people and the way that they self-engineered that stage setup was just, it's one of my favorite parts of the book. Oh, thank you. Yeah, and I, I myself am a huge Wasp fan as well. And talking to Chris Holmes about that stuff was great. I mean, and this is a good example too. Like the guys in the band are always great. Um, but what really makes the Wasp story come alive, I think are people like Al Bain, who was the, the designer. He went on to become a pretty well-known um, clothing designer, but yeah. back then he was friends with Wasp. He's helping them build all of this stuff in their garage, in a garage basically. And to get this sort of perspective from him, and he goes into detail about, you know, how they were making the fire sign and the, and the torture yeah. rack and, you know, even Blackie's uh, cod piece, the saw blade cod piece. Like, you know, that, that is detail that, again, as somebody that has been listening to us for 35 years and, you know, seen all this imagery, like, that is detail that I had never nor would I have ever expected to get in my lifetime. So, like, it's those little morsels where, they, you know, you combine that type of stuff with what the guys in the band are saying and you get this story that you know is so rich in a way that i i feel like i've never gotten before how richard how how difficult was it to tell we all know how this story ends but at the end of the decade uh, these rockers man they were so prideful they worked so hard to get to this certain point how difficult was it as uh as you were putting the story together to kind of discuss that part you knew it was coming but mm-hmm. how difficult was that, man? 
I don't know that it was that difficult, actually. Like, everyone was pretty open about it. I think the great thing is, like, you know, everyone immediately goes to the Nirvana thing and, and never mind, and then my career was over. But the more you talk to them about it, you start to get these other things, too. Like, people saying, like, Fred Curry from Cinderella saying, like, well, you know, maybe all of us fans weren't doing our best work anyway in right. 1990, 1991, right. even before Grunge comes in. So, like, people start offering other perspectives and other things that might have been going on at the time that, again, add to the, the richness of the story. But as far as the difficulty, I would say two things. One is that it wasn't that difficult and people were really open to talking about this stuff. And two, I think that could have something to do with the timing because now a lot of these guys are in a really good place again. Uh, they're, they're doing well out on the road. They're making a lot of money. Some of them are playing stadiums at this point. So I think it would have been very difficult to maybe ask them this question in 1999 for sure. um, when they were still smarting from it. And they were also still really trying to continue on as not just, not just resting on their past. Uh, but now it's not that they're resting on their past, but they accept and they, you know, how, how much they're celebrated for that. And they're in a good place again. So they don't have a problem talking about it at this point. And Richard, I want to I want to tell you the same thing that I ta- I told Tom in, in closing. Uh, I talk about this music a lot on my radio show. Uh, I talk about it uh, a lot on my on my podcast, and I will forever use this book as a reference. I just I think it's just awesome. It's well overdue, and uh, it's so well done. Much appreciated for you guys doing this and going to the links that you did, man. But I will always use it as a reference now. Oh well, thank you. I mean that that means that we did our job, and so that makes me happy. Thank you, Richard. Thank you. Have a good rest of the day. There you have it. Tom Bozier and Richard Beanstock. Once again, the name of their book, Nothing But a Good Time, The Uncensored History of the 80s Hard Rock Explosion. You gotta read it. As far as, well, just looking at the schedule here, as far as upcoming episodes of Garage Days, this much I can tell you. In three weeks, it's gonna be the Bloody Mary show. Flight Pattern Bob is gonna be our guest garage bartender He's going to be making Bloody Marys with Chad Stewart of Faster Pussycats, Devil's Crown Bloody Mary Mix. And then, well, Doug Blessing and I are going to be drinking them. And in two weeks, Chris Stein from Picktown Palooza, he's going to be joining me in the Hawk's Nest. And we're going to call Jack Russell and Robbie Lochner of Jack Russell's Great White, who's going to be playing this year's Picktown Palooza with Firehouse. Next week's show, got a few ideas. They all involve you know, beer and tunes. So no big change there. Until the next Garage Days, stay frosty. I'll have to check that out.